from, from Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. I need to confess to you that the first time I saw the video that you just witnessed was uh, I was in Matt's office this week. It was just he and I, and he said, watch what I got. And I, something evoked in me. I can't understand. I can't explain it. But I was doing call and response to a TV screen. I was like, come on, yeah. And, uh, and, then, and then at the end, I was crying. I'm so glad to be a part of this church. And I'm glad you're here too. Whether you're here with us in the room or you're with us uh, at your couch, we're grateful to have you. Today, we're going to do something just a little bit different during the sermon time. We're going to take like a 30,000-foot perspective. We're going to step back uh, from coming to some of the normal preaching that we do, and we're going to talk a little bit about mission, and we're going to talk a lot about vision. And we're going to seat that conversation in uh, two parts of Revelation, Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 21. So if you have your Bible, kind of open those up, maybe put your finger in one spot. Um, We'll start in Revelation chapter 7. We're going to begin by thinking about the Missio Dei, the mission of God. Now, the mission of God never changes. It has never changed from the beginning of time until now, and it will not change until the end of time. Uh, We have been saying the mission of God here at Highland every Sunday for more than 20 years. You heard it this morning. You said it this morning when you said in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's where Tabby led us. It's the hope and promise for what God is doing in this world. And it began not in just the experience of Jesus Christ, but the experience of God and God's self. So what I want us to do is we're going to talk about the end and then the beginning, and that'll get us to now, and maybe we can understand where we're at now. The mission of God has never changed. God's voice, when God spoke into the world, changes things. It creates reality. God says light, there is light in the universe. God says land, there is land in the universe. God's words changes reality. 
And God has chosen to spoke in many different ways. Sometimes it's a, a theophany. It's an experience like Abraham walking out into the night and looking up at the stars and hearing the voice of God say, so will your descendants be. Or that second experience of the, the smoking pot that passes through the split animals. It's a covenant that God is making with Abraham and Abraham's descendants to always be faithful no matter what. It's the moment when Moses sees a burning bush that isn't burning up and says, I need to see what's going on there. It's every vision and every dream. It's every word that the prophets spoke to call God's people back, to call them back into relationship, to call them back into living well with one another. The mission of God from the very beginning hasn't changed. Although it has been clear in the Old Testament and through the voice of God, it is most clearly expressed in the life of Jesus that, that God chose to send Jesus to become flesh to show us most clearly who God truly is. In the same way that Israel was to be a priest for the nations, to be the example of what it looks like to live in right relationship with God and right relationship with one another, Jesus is the example for all of humanity. If you want to know what God thinks, listen to Jesus. If you want to know how God acts in the world, watch Jesus. If you want to know the wisdom of God, listen to Jesus. That the embodiment of Jesus Christ is the most clear definition of what we can understand of God's work in this universe. But then Jesus will tell us in chapter John, or, or in, uh, in, in the book of John, that uh, although he is in the world, there's only one place and one time that he can be. And so after he goes, he will send the paraclete. And that's the comforter, that's the, the, the advisor, that's, that's the advocate, it's the Holy Spirit. So that the presence of God is not limited just to the presence of Jesus, but he can go throughout the entire world. In fact, in Acts 2, we see that the power of the Spirit is poured out on the apostles and the disciples, and they are empowered to go and spread that good news. So let's talk about the end so that we can understand the beginning and then maybe that helps us understand where we are right now. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we're grateful today to be gathered in this place. We're grateful for the chance to sing praises to your name, to proclaim to the world who you are as we gather together around the table. And Father, as we look forward to your preferred future, not just in the life to come, but in our lives now, we turn our hearts to your word. And as we turn our, our hearts and our minds here, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth in love to these, your people. And it's together that the church says, amen. So we're in the book of Revelation, and I, I want to give us just a little short primer on how to read the book of Revelation, because this book is unusual in the, the Bible in that it's a certain kind of literature. It's apocalyptic. Now, there's chances and places, especially in the book of Mark and a few other places, where apocalyptic, that genre, shows up, but it's most cleanly understood in the book of Revelation. And it can be confusing by definition, because apocalypse means to kind of reveal what's hidden, to reveal, shed light on what's confusing. It's kind of like you can see the actors on the stage and things happening, but if you were to pull back that curtain, you would see everything that was happening backstage. And that's what this vision that John has does. And so just as 
a little primer. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, the first thing I would recommend is if you hear somebody explaining this book, talking about the book of Revelations, maybe take that with a grain of salt. If you encounter someone that seems to have drawn some straight lines between this book and the visions that happen and the events happening in kind of the world today and in current world politics or economics, maybe take that with a grain of salt. Because I haven't been around that long, but this is what I've seen. I've seen the book of Revelation interpreted to understand that, well, you, you want to know who the beast is, that's George Bush. And then a few years later, you want to know who the beast is, that's oh, President Obama. You want to know who the beast is, and I'm sure in a few years we're going to hear President Biden. Um, and then there's other things like the hornets, what those really are, are Apache helicopters, But if you dig into the the history of interpretation of this book, what you're going to find out is that scholars and well-meaning individuals have done this for thousands of years. And I want to reflect on that for a minute. How arrogant to believe that we are at the point of the end of time. Now, you all are at the point of the end of your time, have no doubt. You've got about one shot at this. You've got one chance. You don't get a do-over. You have one life, and you better live it to your fullest, to the glory of God. You have one chance. But how arrogant to believe that all of those things that were written were written for now. And so, if you hear that, just take it with a grain of salt. Instead, this is what I want you to hear. There are a lot of complicated visions. There's a lot of beautiful theological work that's happening there. There's a lot of dipping back into the Old Testament and pulling ideas and bringing them forward. But the key to Revelation, understanding this book, is to understand that in the end, at the end of time, God wins. That Christ is victorious. And so it doesn't matter what you're going through right now if it's great or if it's terrible, if it looks like there is no hope, then take heart because in the wind, God is going to bring about the victory that God desires. And there's two kind of visions of the throne room that I want to throw up side by side today as we look together at this book. The first is in Revelation chapter 7. And it's interesting because there's these two side-by-side stories that get thrown together. They're meant to contrast one another. It's the same thing as Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Two different stories that are put side-by-side so we can see both their uniqueness and their difference. And in the first story, it says, we know how many people are in heaven. There is a capacity there. It's 144,000, and those come from certain tribes, and that's what heaven is. Those are the saints who are deemed worthy. But then if you read the next, very next line, the author John talks about the multitude. And he picks up in verse 7, I believe. After I looked, there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their heads, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so if you want to understand what happens in the throne room of God, I want to point out two things. The white robes and the palm branches are a symbol of how Israel would understand the coming of the Messiah. 
This is what happens on Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. The people there believe this is the Messiah, and so they take those signals to show the world, look, the Messiah has come. And so in heaven, one of the things we see is that the Messiah is here. And the second thing that we see is that heaven is noisy. People are always singing. The angels sing, the elders sing, the multitudes sing. There are new songs, there are old songs. Heaven is full of worship. And everyone, more than anybody could count, they're all there. And I believe, brothers and sisters, that God is creating us to be a place a place for every generation, a place for every person, a place for every tribe, and a place for every need. And let me unpack what I mean by that. First, a place for every generation. Every person here in this church matters. We are a five-generation church, and we are proud of that fact. We are proud of the fact that we are investing because we care deeply about our young people, about our babies and our teenagers, but we also care about those that are on the other end of that spectrum. It's not very often that, that people get to retire in, in the kingdom. In fact, I don't think that idea even exists. If, if you're at that age, it's not time to retire. It's time to begin to invest in what's coming next. We're a place where every person is valued for their gifts. Every spiritual gift that is in this body, we're going to do our best to help it be expressed to its fullest extent. We're a place where we believe every tribe is welcome. And I'm, I want to be careful there. I'm using intentionally the word tribe instead of nation. There's nothing wrong with the idea of nation. It's formed by political boundaries, enforced by uh, laws and, and, and uh, perhaps governments. Uh, every tribe is, is your people. Your tribe is, is your heart language. Your tribe is the cultures and customs that make you who you are. And it doesn't always fit in national lines. Every tribe is welcome here, but also every need. As we responded last week to, to feed those that are hungry in Abilene, as we work to provide safe places for those who need shelter, as we work to provide friendship for those who are lonely, every generation, every person, every tribe, and every need. And because we are trying to grasp onto those ideals, we experience everyday resurrections because God's mercy is new every morning, and we are compelled to go everywhere the spirits lead. God's story is going to leave every child in this church on, a, on an adventure because they have the ability to believe that God is sending them places that we may not be able to go. Our restoration vision is, is to join God putting things back right. And I want to be careful there because we might think restoration is back to the, the good old days. And, and I don't know what that is in your mind. I'm old enough now that I've realized that I have good old days. Um, when gas, gas didn't cost so much, but um, <laughs> I just sound really old. <laughs> I, I have, I've, I've worked in two jobs that no longer exist, two jobs that have become extinct. Isn't that fascinating? I didn't, I didn't think I was that old. We're not working to restore some 1950s vision of the Church of Christ. We're not working to restore in our history kind of the late 70s, early 80s part of Highlands history. 
We're not trying to go back to just the good old days. We're looking forward to what God is doing in this world. We're not talking about the restoration of when I was happy. We're talking about the restoration of God's good creation. And so our vision is to join God putting things back. Because sin is not the breaking of a rule or a law. It's the breaking of a relationship. I want to repeat that so you can kind of wrestle with it for a second. Sin is not the breaking of a rule or a law. Sin is the breaking of a relationship. And so when we talk about restoration, what we're talking about is God bringing back, mending, healing those relationships. Heaven is not the goal, although heaven, uh, as some think of heaven, it has restored heaven and earth. And what does that mean exactly? I want to I talk about that for a minute. Heaven is not the goal, although it is the place that we end up. It means that you can't join in God's work while despising the goal of the work. That is to say, you can't hope that one day everything here gets destroyed and it doesn't matter because I get to go to heaven. The church is not an escape pod or a lifeboat, but it is an ark. An ark saved not only the people of God, but it also restored creation. The church is not a cue for the party waiting outside the club, but is inside at the dance. And so our restoration vision, which Jonathan Stormont and Ben Seibert uh, began about 12 years ago, uh, we, we began to take in that part to see where God is working in our church, in Abilene, and in the world, and we prayed that we would have the courage to join what God was doing. And we set out some goals, and a lot of those goals were very ambitious. And I, I admire so many of those. And some of them we have completed, some of them we're still working on, and some of them may not happen. And we're in a phase right now at Highland where our church leadership is spending a season reflecting and dreaming about the future and what it means for us. And we've been working pretty diligently on this since July. It's it's kind of like redwood trees. Uh, the time we spent in California, if you just went over the, the hills, you'd get on to the other side of the, the Pacific side of the mountains, and there were redwood groves everywhere. Now, some of those groves were protected, like mere woods, and you can go there and you can see thousand-year-old trees. But even in, in the places that were logged, you can still see 100, 150-year-old redwoods, but they're not the same. I got to work with a camp that had a few old redwood trees that had never been logged. They were, they were uh, pristine. And there's this beautiful thing of, that happens with redwoods. When an old redwood grows and it dies and it falls over, it sends out these little shoots, the, the seedlings, that begin to grow around the base of the giant tree. You fast forward two or three hundred years and you walk where the old redwood was, it's rotted away, but you look up and it's called a cathedral. And what you see is this circle of trees that have grown up around you and it stretches to the sky. It's magnificent. The giant redwood has one of the smallest acorns of a plant, of, of a tree like that. And there's only certain conditions that will allow that acorn to open up. It has to be a certain temperature, a certain humidity, um, a certain situation has to be perfect. But when it does, it'll open up and there's this little puff of seeds, tiny, tiny little seeds. If you look at the bottom of the acorn after it's opened up, there's this little smiley face. It's a really cute thing. 
But some of those seeds land in the ground and some of them begin to plant. But for the first 70 years of that tree's life, it doesn't really grow that much. I mean, it maybe gets 30, 40, 50 feet tall. Now, I know in West Texas, like, that's a huge tree, but we're talking about <laughs> California coast here. It doesn't get that tall because it's spending all of its energy sending out roots. And the roots don't go very deep. They only go about a foot, maybe two feet into the soil, but they go out every which direction. And what they try to do is encounter other redwood roots. And when they find them, they tend to weave. It's the oddest thing. They create this kind of network, this matrix below the ground that helps every tree stand up strong and tall against strong winds. And after that, that, that sapling has begun to found its roots secure, then it begins to grow. And it can grow 10, 20, 30 uh, feet a year. And that's kind of where we're at in this vision process. There's a lot of work that's happening, but it's happening below the surface. And I'm excited to tell you, probably early next year, February, March, we're going to be able to roll out a new vision for God, where what we see God is doing in our church, in our city, and in our world. Because we don't know exactly what's happening right now with the future. Anyone would say that the season that we've been in with pandemic and all of the other disruptions that have happened in our church, it's hard to predict what's going to happen in the next few years. What we do know is that God is faithful and will remain consistent for us. And so even though we have an uncertain future, we feel certain about the faithfulness of God. Because our lives are, are, are the collected dedication of one thing, to see the name, Jesus' name, and way proclaimed to everyone. And this has been the way it was from the beginning. Barbara Brown Taylor wrote, when people wanted Jesus to tell them what God's kingdom was like, he told them stories about their own lives. When people wanted him to tell them of the God's truth about something, he asked them what they thought. With all kinds of opportunities to tell people what to think, he told them what to do instead. Wash feet. Give your stuff away. Share your food. Favor reprobates. Pray for those who are out to get you. And then be the first to say, I'm sorry. It's not waiting for something. It's not waiting for heaven. Real life is what Jesus means when he's talking about eternal life. N.T. Wright has spent a lot of effort writing about the restoration of all things. And he, he, sense, he sets the locus of his, of his theological framework. He, he wants to put the most important ideas down on Revelation 21. And that's the text that you heard this morning. What's fascinating about the story of Revelation 21, it's when the people of God experience heaven. But it's not the way you think. It's not that, you know, when you die, if you've been baptized, if you believe, if you've been covered by grace, your, your, your body is put into a coffin, your coffin is put into the ground, and then somehow your soul disengages from those things and kind of rises up to experience the wonder of God. That's not what Revelation 21 says. What Revelation 21 says is that heaven comes down to earth. And in this new vision of what the earth looks like when heaven comes near, there's no sea. Now, the sea is a symbol. The sea is a symbol of chaos. The sea is a symbol of unpredictability. The sea is a symbol of things, bad things that happen to you because you can't control your life on the sea. The sea is gone. Chaos is gone. 
You don't need the sun in this new place because Christ is the light. And what we know we do in Revelation chapter 21 is we experience the glory of God and we worship. Gospel means good news. And T. Wright has this great fable that he tells. Um, now, remember, he's English. So when I say football, I'm not talking about American football, the real football. I'm talking about soccer. Um, he tells this fascinating story. He says, imagine that you're sitting in, in, a, in a cafe and someone strange comes in and says, I've got good news. You don't know who they are. They don't know who you are. But they want to tell you the good news. And they say, maybe it's one of three things. Maybe my daughter has been in the hospital and they finally figured out what the cancer is and they can treat it. Or maybe he comes in and says, hey, the local football team, they just won and so uh, they don't have to go into relegation. Now, if you don't know what relegation is, it's because you're not watching Ted Lasso. All you need to know is that uh, British football, the soccer kind, they don't play games. It's for real. Like, you lose your app. Um, the team has won. We're not going to relegation. Or maybe it's good news. They just found ore in the mine. There's a new industry that's coming into town. People are going to have jobs again. Now, I want to think about those three things. Those, the good news that we experience is seated in the story of something that's already unfolding. My daughter had a serious disease. We didn't know what it was. We were afraid for what the outcome would be. Our soccer team was losing. It looked like uh, we were going to end up in relegation. We were afraid for what that meant. The city was dying. There weren't enough jobs. The young kids were moving away. We were sad to see it go. But then something happens, and it's going to change things, but the results may not be immediate. The, the daughter is still in the hospital. She still needs the treatment. The, they've, they've made sure they aren't in relegation anymore, but they still haven't finished the season. The, the industry is coming, but the jobs aren't here yet. So there's, there's a future thing to look forward to. That's what good news is. Good news of Jesus, it transcends time. It's as if a shockwave went through history on Sunday morning when Christ arose. It affected every moment of time. And T. Wright says the good news about the past has to so do with something that Jesus did back then. The good news about the future has to do with something that Jesus is going to do when he returns. He will transform the whole world and fill it with justice, joy, and love. We live in the era between the victory of Christ and the enthronement. A way for us to think about that is we live between the election and the inauguration. But this voice has been true throughout Scripture from the very beginning. Hear the words of the psalmist. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roll, roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. The, and the, the shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. God has entrusted the good news to be carried by the church. God has entrusted the good news to be carried by us. He's given it to you. Now, here's the thing about God that I want you to wrestle with as you hear that. God never does more or less than what is perfect. And by perfect, I mean complete. When God speaks to Abraham, he doesn't speak more than he needs to. He doesn't do less than he needs to. 
He does exactly what he needs to do so that Abraham's life can be redirected towards God's purpose. When Moses has the encounter with the burning bush, they have a very short conversation. It's like, it's like five questions and five answers. And in that time, God gives Moses exactly what he needs to do the next step to release the people of Israel from bondage. God does exactly what God intended to do in the life of Jesus to save the world. And he's doing the same in you. When God entrusted the good news to the church, he did exactly what God wanted to do. The church, discipled by Jesus and led by the Spirit, is God's plan for the partnership in new heaven and new earth. And don't, don't get it twisted. Some people will look at this ragtag group of folks who show up and say, them? I mean, sometimes we look at ourselves and we're going to say, us? Because we're not worthy and we are not capable. If you think that, then you're right. Other times, people are going to look at the gathered who show up and say, this time with a little disgust, them? Don't get it twisted. Jesus tells us in John that he is sheep that are not of this fold. And I want us to think for a minute, what is he talking about? I asked this question to my college students. I'm teaching a, a Jesus uh, Bible 101 class this semester at ACU. And I asked that question to my, my college students. What is he talking about? And I, when I think about this, you know what? I really hope the answer is aliens. You know, like there's life in the universe that knows God and loves God and is, this place is much bigger than us. You know, maybe those other flocks are aliens. Okay, probably not aliens. Um, but this is where I think Jesus is going. There is a sharp difference betwe between those who claim Jesus or claim God and those who are doing the work of God. They're not always the same. There is a sharp difference between those who claim Jesus and those that hear Jesus' voice and follow him like a good sheep. Jesus also said, my kingdom is not of this world. But the better understanding of that text is Jesus' kingdom is not from this world, but it is for this world. And I'm not certain where all this is going to end up where, or more importantly, who God is going to bring into our path. But I do know this. Highland has been and will continue to be the place where we hold not only in our words, but in our hearts each week, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We will continue to follow God's unfolding kingdom as best we can. I said it a couple of months ago, but I want to remind you today. We live in this hard time of grief right now as our church because a lot of us can look to the empty seat next to us and realize who's not there. When we gather at our small groups, there's a pain that we feel in your classroom, in your adult Bible class, where somebody that used to be there isn't there anymore. But I want to remind you what we know, that while that is a real and legitimate grief, it's also an opportunity because God is going to do something in our midst. That empty seat is not just grief, it's opportunity for us to tell someone else about what Jesus is doing in this world. And we participate in that and we say in our hearts, 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. When we seek to love and care for those who God holds close. This is a poor analogy, but I'm going to tell you anyway. A redwood, the first 70 years of its life are not remarkable. It's just scaffolding. It's just infrastructure. The real growth is going to happen much later in its life. What if, what if the life of this church has been scaffolding, root work, building the foundation for where God wants to take us next? And what if you and I, we get to see it together? Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? I want to invite our prayer team to come forward. Uh, our prayer team is a group of elders and some other leaders who have been uh, tasked with the, with the pastoral responsibility of praying for you all. If, if you have uh, someone or something that you need to pray about, uh, these uh, leaders want to be available for you. They want to listen with you. They want to talk with you. But most importantly, they want to pray with you. And if that means that this needs to follow up with a, a cup of coffee later in this week or, or if it needs some, means somebody needs to walk with you through a season, uh, they want to be available for you now. Uh, you can find them uh, right after the benediction. Uh, when we dismiss, come down to the front, and, and they want to be here to pray with you. Would you please stand for our benediction? May the God of peace and comfort rule in your hearts in Christ Jesus. May you find your place in the unfolding kingdom this week, and may you have the courage to follow what God calls you to do. Be filled with the Spirit and go in peace.